That hauntingly beautiful music you just heard is the opening of a string quartet by Chicago composer Shulamit Ran. The quartet is titled Glitter, Doom, Shards, Memory, string quartet number three. It was performed by the Pacifica Quartet from a new album called Contemporary Voices. And those who are familiar with this space know that anytime there's a new album on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of SAD and producer of this recording, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is Brandon Vamos, founding member and cellist of the Pacifica Quartet. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Jim. So before we get into the album itself, let's talk a little bit about the Pacifica Quartet. If you could give a brief rundown of the quartet's history, highlights, and how the ensemble has evolved over the years. Well, I believe this is our 26th year as a quartet. We formed in 1994, briefly in Los Angeles, that's hence the name Pacifica. But very shortly after forming, we got a small job in Chicago at the Music Institute of Chicago and started a life there. And let me just intersect to say that is not the only Chicago route of the quartet, correct? I grew up near Chicago in a town called Macomb, Illinois. My parents live here, so there's strong connections with the city of Chicago. I've always called it home. It was really where the quartet started. All our support came from Chicago. Our connections with Sadie Records, obviously, through being Chicago artists. We were able to survive as a quartet by our little residency there and later on a residency at the University of Chicago, which kept us afloat for many years. In fact, 17. 17 years, that's right, at the University of Chicago in a really great period of our musical life and a big part of this recording with the music of Shulamit Ron, a University of Chicago composer. And now we are in residence at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We spent years at University of Chicago, Northwestern, and eight years at the University of Illinois in Champaign, again, very close to Chicago. So 26 years now, and things are still as exciting as ever. What Brandon is modestly not saying is that four years after forming, in 1998, the quartet won the Naumburg Chamber Music Award was honored with Chamber Music America's Cleveland Quartet Award in 2002 and appointed to Lincoln Center's Bowers Program, formerly known as Chamber Music Society II. The quartet won a prestigious Avery Fisher Career Grant in 2006, was named Ensemble of the Year by Musical America in 2009, and won a Grammy for their recording of Elliot Carter's first and fifth string quartets on Noxos, an album that came out in 2008. So quite a few accolades there. And the quartet was also in residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York for a while. Yes, we were in residence for three great years, playing many times a year on their series regularly. It was fantastic. The current membership of the Pacifica Quartet is Samin Ganatra and Austin Hartman violins, Mark Holloway viola, and Brandon Vamos, of course, cello. And you probably should explain the relationship between the two founding and continuing members of the quartet, as well as if you could talk a little bit about how the membership of the other positions has evolved. Well, Samin and I are married, not when the quartet formed 26 years ago, but not too many years later, we did get married. We've had a a number of members early on that were changing, but we had the same membership for 17 years. And then recently, we had a change of our inner voices, and Austin Hartman and Mark Holloway joined a year apart. So now this is our third year in this configuration. After 17 years of the same membership, it was quite a change to have two new members, It's been incredibly exciting. It's added a vibrancy to the quartet, having to 
learn two new players and how they affect the quartet and their musical ideas, which are very eye-opening and it's created a new sense of identity. But yeah, there's been an evolution over the years for sure. And I should note that Austin Hartman is familiar to Sadie Records fans because he used to be the first violinist of the Biava Quartet, which recorded a couple of Chicago composer Stacy Garrop's quartets for Sadie. Can you tell us a little bit about Mark? Mark is a fantastic violist and person. We were so lucky to find him. We had an audition process, and we knew about Mark. He was living in New York. He was playing a lot with Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society, playing a lot of their concerts, and everybody talked about what a great musician Mark is. And so we brought him out to Bloomington to read with us. You can usually know within a minute or two, you get the sense of where somebody is as a player and how they fit and how they listen and how they are expressively and their sound. And, and it was pretty immediate with Mark. He's just been a great addition. He's got a great viola sound. He knows how to project when he needs to. He's incredibly aware musician. He knows when he can take a secondary role. All around good chamber musician and very knowledgeable about music. In terms of repertoire, he seems to know almost every piece doesn't matter how obscure it is, he has an idea about it and he's familiar with it. So it's been also nice to have all that knowledge of this greater repertoire, pieces that we weren't even aware of. And he's the newest member of the group, correct? Yeah, this is going to be his third season starting in the fall. And was the process the year before with Austin similar? Yes, we had a very short turnaround in a matter of time that we were looking for somebody but we were so lucky. Austin had 12 years in a quartet as the first violinist of the Biava. That experience, knowing what a quartet takes, what's involved, knowing the repertoire, it wasn't hard. Once we started playing with him, of course, we were aware of his experience, but it was very obvious that first meeting, again, how there he was, how easy it was to connect with him. Must have been interesting for him to be playing so many of the same quartets, but a different part. I think it was first a challenge. First violinist is often leading. They often have the melodic line. The second violin role has to be incredibly flexible. When we called him about reading with the quartet, he said he's always had a dream of playing second violin in a quartet. Even when he was a first violinist, this was something he always wanted to do. And I think he handles the role great. And of course, you and your wife, Simine, are the founding members of the quartet, and you've always anchored as the cellist, and I think Samin has certainly received accolades for her imaginative performances as the first violinist. It strikes me about her is no matter how many times a phrase comes back, she finds ways to make it sound special. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. She's always full of color. We were rehearsing a duo earlier today, and it's just amazing how she'll surprise me. She keeps all of us on our toes with her imagination. Well, let's move on to Contemporary Voices, which is Pacifica's 12th album for CD. And I should note that Pacifica made its recording debut of any kind for CD in 1999. And also a Chicago composer, quartets by Easley Blackwood from the University of Chicago Music Department, just like Shulman Ron. I understand that the inspiration for this recording was the first piece on the program, the quartet that Shulamit Ron wrote for you in 2013. And Shulamit Ron actually shares the distinction with the other two composers on this album of being a Pulitzer Prize winner. She won the 1991 Pulitzer for her symphony. 
She was in residence with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra from 1990 to 1997, and overlapping that with the residency at Lyric Opera of Chicago between 1994 and 1997. She's been a professor at the University of Chicago since 1973 and currently is a professor emerita there. So, Brandon, can you talk a little bit about Ron's piece and how it was such an inspiration? Well, as I mentioned before, we had a residency for 17 years at the University of Chicago. And during that time, we got to know Shulamit very, very well. We love her musicianship. We love her writing. We love her as a person. She's become a friend. We spent hours working with her. And we had asked her a couple times if she had time to write a quartet. And she's very busy. She's very sought after. And she has so many projects going on. And eventually she found the time and was willing to write a quartet. So we were incredibly excited about that. The next thought was she wanted to know what kind of quartet she should write. And at the time we were in residence at the Met and we were thinking about the connections of visual art and music. And so we thought maybe that would be a starting point if she had any ideas. And she had been recently introduced to the paintings of Felix Nussbaum, who was a painter who perished in the Holocaust. And she was very taken by his work. We didn't really know much about him at that time. When she wrote it, the idea was that we would have a couple years before we would get the music. But when she started writing it, I don't think she could stop and was done way earlier than expected. It's a fantastic work. We've played it probably close to 100 times now. It never gets tiresome. That's how you know it's a great piece. I never get bored. There's so much to explore in the piece. There's so much depth and emotion. It's a very meaningful work to her, and it comes out that way. We're just so grateful to have this piece in our repertoire. So as Brandon noted, Shulamit wrote this piece at the invitation of the quartet. And we should note about Felix Nussbaum that he's a German-Jewish painter who lived from 1904 to 1944, with his life unfortunately ending in Auschwitz in 1944. And what Shulamit says about this quartet is she wanted to write a musical composition that would be an homage to his life in art and to that of so many others like him during this era, knowing that their days were numbered, yet intent on leaving a mark, a legacy, a memory, Their art is triumph of the human spirit over annihilation. And she also says that this quartet is her way of saying, do not forget. In the booklet for this recording, there is a Nussbaum self-portrait from 1943 with him holding up his Jewish identity card and with the infamous yellow Star of David on his coat. It's a really stark and arresting image. I recommend people, even if they don't buy the CD, you can check out the booklet on our website. You'll want to see that. So let's talk a little bit about the piece, and then we will actually hear some of it. It's in four movements. The first movement is simply titled That Which Happened, which is a reference to the Holocaust. I'm going to skip over the second because that's what we're going to listen to. The third movement is titled If I Perish, Do Not Let My Paintings Die, and those are words actually by Nussbaum. And then finally, the last moment is titled Shard's Memory, which is, of course, half the title of the whole quartet, Glitter Doom Shard's Memory, which is named after a painting exhibition that Shulamit Ron witnessed. And she notes in this movement that only shards are left and memory. The second movement is very interesting scherzo. But before we get to that, Brandon, is there anything you want to say about the other movements and the quartet as a whole? Well, when you hear her descriptions of the piece, it really says a lot. She talks about this first movement, that which happened as a life interrupted. 
like the innocence of life and then all of a sudden it being shattered by the sudden change. And that's what really happens in the music. You played a little of the opening, this sweet, beautiful tune. And I remember in rehearsal that Shulamit described this as a tune that you kind of know, it's familiar, but you don't really know it, but it seems like it's something you've heard in the past. What's striking about this first movement is these sudden interruptions. The music is constantly being interrupted in a jagged way with these changes in character, often interrupting something very beautiful and lyrical. When you look at her score, she's full of descriptive words. It's another thing that I love about learning her piece. She really wants you to get into the true spirit and essence of the piece by her descriptions, ethereal and desolate and glacial and like bells and with gravity and with mystery. It's, to me, very helpful in trying to understand what she intends. So the first movement has a lot of these interruptive moments. And the last movement is incredibly moving. If you just think about shards and memory, that's what's left at the end. And some of it's quite beautiful. She describes it as moments of singing and dancing and something very positive. It's also very melancholy. It's very hard to end a work like this, and I think she captures it perfectly. That's a beautiful framing of the piece. Now in the middle is this scherzo titled Menace. She says in her notes, Menace is a shorter movement mimicking a scherzo. It's also machine-like, incessant, with an occasional recurring waltz-like little tune, perhaps the chilling grimace we recognize from the executioner's guillotine mask. Like the death machine it alludes to, it gathers momentum as it goes and is unstoppable. It's such an incredible movement. It is pretty chilling, the way it ends with the whistling. The effect of performing that live, I can't even describe it, but it leaves you with chills. Again, we're so used to scherzo, lively, jokingly. Obviously, Shostakovich scherzo evolved over time, and this is, in my opinion, that evolution. All of a sudden, you have a scherzo entitled Menace. And Mahler before Shostakovich. Uh, Right, of course. True. Again, it's very descriptive. There's this melody that keeps on returning, but it changes throughout the movement and gets more and more worked up. Her ability to create a frenzy. I love the whole piece, but this movement stands out. And I would echo what you say about the ending where three of the instruments playing high harmonics, which is like whistling on the violin, and then one player actually puts down the violin and actually literally whistles, and it is a very eerie and chilling effect. So with that in mind, here is the second moment of the Third String Quartet by Shulamit Ron in its world premiere recording by the Pacifica Quartet. The movement is titled Menace.
You just heard the second movement of a recent string quartet by Chicago composer Shulmit Ron. The quartet is titled Glitter, Doom, Shards, Memory, string quartet number three. That particular movement is titled Menace, and of course the menace being referred to is the Holocaust. You heard it in its world premiere recording by the Pacifica Quartet on an album titled Contemporary Voices, and the members of the quartet we just heard are Simin Ganatra and Austin Hartman Violins. Mark Holloway Viola, and Brandon Bamos, my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast, cello. And I should note that if you enjoy what you're hearing on this podcast, you can go to cdrecords.org, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, and you can find the album there or anywhere else albums are sold, like Archive Music or Amazon.com. And after the album's official release date of July 10, you'll also be able to find it on all streaming sites, such as Spotify and Apple Music and the rest. So any way you like to consume your music, you should be able to find this album, and I really hope you will. I should also note that this album is supported very generously, made possible by Bruce Altman and Sadie board member Bonnie McGrath. So my great thanks to them for their support of this work. Before we move on to the rest of the program, this was the one piece where the composer was actually present at the recording session. And I say session singular because this was, in fact, all recorded in one day in January of 2019. How does having the composer present affect the preparation and the performance? It always affects it and always a positive thing. We spent a lot of time with Shulamit, even when she was finishing up the piece. We had long sessions with her. She wanted to hear how things sounded. She's very concerned about the markings on a page and how this music will be perceived by following musicians who perform the work. And so she had a lot of questions about if she was looking for something, how she could notate it so she would get the desired effect from people working on this piece. So we spent a lot of time on that. She really brought out everything in the music. She was very demanding with her thoughts and ideas. It was just incredibly fruitful to have the composer there to be able to work so intimately with her. Having her at the session, again, was quite interesting because we had worked with her a few years before premiering the work. And then she felt like when she came back to the piece with us before the recording that she had new ears to listen. She could come at it from a different angle now. She had some new ideas. We had maybe changed some things in our interpretation, some things that she really preferred and some things she wanted to work on. During the session, I think having her ears there, making sure that she felt like the voicing that she wanted to hear was coming out. I, I remember a few times where she said, well, this passage needs a lot more cello, and I had never really thought of it that way. It made so much sense. So I'm so glad that she was there. She was hands-on. She wanted the piece to be really accurate to her desire and feelings about it. So it, it was great. The whole experience with working with Shulna is very inspiring. She's a great musician. She's an excellent pianist. So she understands musicians. She understands the challenge of what we do, can articulate in a very clear way. She's very musical. And that's what I always find working with composers is that what it comes down to it, it's not about this lining up and this being perfect. It's about the musical effect. And that's what we hopefully go for when we're rehearsing. But it's so nice to have the musician there to guide you and reinforce that. It's interesting to learn that even though you recorded this piece less than six years after it was written, 
that there was already an evolution process in terms of your performance. Of course, it occurs to me that personnel did change in the interim as well, so I assume that affected your interpretation as well. That's very true. Yeah, two new members bring something to the way we play it. But I think even with any great piece of music, you have that ability to live it, to breathe it, to make changes in the way you feel it. It doesn't have to be the same. And I think even with Shulamit, she had those same feelings that she came back to it. Music is not static. Even written down music has the ability to breathe and evolve a little bit. Speaking of working with composers, you've been working with Jennifer Higdon since 1997. I should say a few words about her. Like the other two composers on this album, she's also a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's also a three-time Grammy winner. Here's a little bit of a Chicago connection. She won the prestigious Nemers Prize from Northwestern University in 2018 and holds a chair in composition at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia as her home base. Can you talk a little bit about how the Pacifica and Higdon came together in 1997 and how it led to her dedicating to you a quartet she had actually written four years earlier? Well, sometimes you get lucky. Things just happen. We were at a festival in Utah, and we were paired up with Jennifer, composer and quartet. We were lucky enough to be in that situation. She wasn't the Jennifer Higdon we all know now, this big figure in music. She was a young student. We were just a brand new quartet. We were very green and enthusiastic. This piece is very challenging. We were able to rehearse it before getting to the festival. We were taken by it right away. It's such a virtuosic piece. It's such a beautiful piece. Also being young, it was an exciting time to be at a festival, to have this great piece to work on. And we also spent quite a few hours with Jennifer. She's just a warm, open, great person. We would work on her piece. We would go out for dinner in Park City, Utah. We have really nice memories about that time with her. After that summer, we took that piece and we started performing it. And eventually we had our New York debut in Alice Tully Hall. We wanted to have a program that wasn't just your standard Bartok Quartet in the middle. We felt like Jennifer's piece was perfect. We were excited about having a young composer's work to perform in New York at this time. And it was a great experience. We stay in touch with Jennifer over the years. It was really nice to connect with her for this recording. And as you alluded, Jennifer has, in fact, gone on to become one of the most performed living composers in America. It is pretty wonderful that you got to be with her so early on, to be working with her at the beginning, really, of both your careers. Her quartet, which lends its title to the whole album, actually, because her quartet is titled Voices. As I mentioned, it's from 1993. It's in three movements, all played Ataka, all connected. A few words she says about them in program note to the recording. Well, she talks about it also fits this visual theme throughout the album because she calls it the telling of three different images. The first image, Blitz, carries tremendous amount of relentless and frenzied energy, she writes. The second image, Soft and Lacing, is a calming contrast. She describes it as a walk through a house in the middle of the night while the floor feels solid underfoot. The rest of the world, to the eyes and ears, seems to be moving shadows. And then the third moment, Grace, is the calmest of all. And of course, the title Grace obviously has so many different meanings. We're actually going to hear an excerpt from the second moment, Soft and Lacing. But what more would you like to say about the quartet and how your interpretation has evolved over nearly a quarter century in the case of this piece? Well, we've played it many, many times, like Shulamit's piece. And in terms of evolving, when you first learn a work, especially a new work, there's a lot of counting and worrying But as that piece gets into your blood a little bit, you can let go and listen in a different way and be in the moment. 
with this piece, we've had enough time for it to become really a part of us. As virtuosic first movement is, and there's many challenges, like rhythmic unisons and that are very offbeat and they have to really line up. There was a certain comfort that we had, even with the new membership. It's a really striking way to begin the Blitz because it attacks your senses right from the very first note and it grabs an audience. It just kind of hits you over the head. I think of this piece as a gradual diminuendo. You know, soft and lacing is relaxing, yet in a way haunting. There's a vagueness about it. And then Grace, which is an incredibly emotional, beautiful movement. It's a fantastic piece. Again, like I said, we were so lucky for it to fall into our lap 24 years ago. As your interpretation involved and preparing for this recording, did you touch base at all with Higdon before recording? Yes, we did. I had some phone conversations. We had some questions for her. We had really spent a lot of time over the years. Everything had been clarified to a degree, and it was hard to see her in person. We did have a lot of questions for her, and she was able to answer them and listen to a recording. But it was not as involved as having Shulamit in Chicago at the recording. But of course, you had lived with this piece for a lot longer. Absolutely. And she was very happy with the way things had been going or were going with it. Initially, especially in the early on, we had spent hours on hours working on it, discussing it. So we had a very clear idea of what to do with the piece. And I'll just note as the producer, I, of course, got to work with sending edits to all the composers. And Jennifer is both extremely detailed. When she wants something, she's very clear about the details. But at the same time, I would say she's also incredibly enthusiastic about what she likes. And that's really rewarding for a producer and I suspect for a player as well. Uh, Very much so, yeah. We're always a little bit on edge and nervous about how the composer feels about the performance and how we're doing. So it's always gratifying when they're happy and enthusiastic about the product taking shape. Well, we're going to hear the first part of this very undulating second movement. Can you set that up a little bit for us? Well, she writes ghost-like. And so it comes in in a very, like she describes the shadows at night, effervescently, very soft these long textural shutters in the viola part and harmonics when I enter in the cello line. A lot of the movement is with this ostinato dotted figure underneath. And then you have these waves that come out and eventually you have these long lines in the viola and first violin, this beautiful conversation. The whole thing is this gradual crescendo to a climax that she does over a long period of time, but it's pretty stunning how she does it. Great movement. Very challenging to play, but incredibly satisfying. You really have to be on your toes. The subtleties that happen dynamically and ensemble. Well, let's hear an excerpt of that. This is the beginning of the second movement of the quartet titled Voices by Jennifer Higdon. The movement is titled Soft and Lacing, and it's performed by the Pacifica Quartet on their new album for Sadie Records, Contemporary Voices.
You just heard the first part of a movement very appropriately titled Soft Enlacing. It's from a quartet titled Voices by Jennifer Higdon, from the album titled Contemporary Voices by the Pacifica Quartet, and you're hearing it on this Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. I'm Jim Ginsberg, the host of these podcasts and the president of Sadie and producer of this recording. And my guest is the cellist of the Pacifica Quartet, Brandon Vamos. There are three works on this album, so let's get to the third, which is by Ellen Tafswillick, who is, like the other composers on this album, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Hers came in 1983, and she was actually the first woman ever to receive the Pulitzer. She also has, among many other honors, an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Music, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and four Grammy nominations. In 1995, she was named to the first composer's chair in the history of Carnegie Hall. She was Musical America's Composer of the Year for 1999, and she has her professorship at Florida State University. Brandon, tell me a little bit about the quartet's history with Zwillick and specifically with the piece on this album, which is actually a quintet for alto saxophone and string quartet. Interestingly enough, I have a connection with her as a child. She probably doesn't know this, but my parents were the members of the Lydian String Trio in Illinois. They recorded her string trio years ago maybe in the early 80s or even late 70s. She wrote this wonderful piece. I remember the initial commission was done by the Tucson Friends of Chamber Music. They had asked the quartet for some suggestions, and of course we respected her composing for years and recommended her to them. It was her idea to write a saxophone quintet, which to us was very interesting to have something for the repertoire. I don't think there's much written for this combination. That was very exciting to work with a sax player and and let's name a sax player. In this case, it's Otis Murphy, who's a colleague of yours at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. He actually joined the faculty at the age of 28, becoming one of its youngest faculty members in history. He's in great demand as an international artist and has performed in more than 25 countries worldwide across four continents. So we're very lucky to have him right here in the Midwest to be with you guys in making this recording. Otis is a good friend and a great colleague. One of the things we're so lucky teaching at a school like Indiana University is that we have such world-class musicians in this little town of ours. He's a fantastic musician. He has incredibly beautiful sound, and he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. It was an easy choice to ask him to join us, and the fact that we could actually get together without any difficulties. His office is two doors down from mine and have that time to really work on this challenging piece. Who had you played it with before? We initially played it with Ashu and then a sax player in Detroit, Eric Lonmark. Otis was our third saxophonist to join the quartet for this piece. And how does the experience differ from player to player? <laughs> so different. They each have their own rhythmic style. Rubato differs from each player. All of them are terrific players, and every performance was incredibly satisfying. With Otis, it was nice to have him for these rehearsals because a big part of this piece is being able to blend with the saxophone sound. There's something suave about it. Zwillick describes the sax as being a little bit sassy at times in this piece. There's a lot of rhythmic unison. There's a lot of chamber music, conversational, playing off each other. Otis is such a great collaborator. It was easy to blend my cello sound into his sound. And that's not easy to do. We're not used to playing with saxophone in quartet. Initially, I think that was challenging. It was also very motivating and exciting. And in fact, Zwillick in her notes describes 
her concept of chamber music as a conversation among equals and notes that each player can be a virtuoso soloist in one moment and a sensitive partner in the next. Yeah, all throughout that piece, you're constantly changing those roles. And I think also one thing she was hoping when we were discussing this piece with her, her desire was that the quartet and the saxophone would be equal partners. It wasn't that we were to take a back seat and showcase the saxophone, but it was that we were working a lot like in the Brahms clarinet quintet, where everybody's equal and responds off each other and has their moment. This work is written that way. And I should note that that sense of balance really comes out well in the recording, thanks to the wonderful work of Bill Malone, who had the challenging task not only of making that balance so perfect between saxophone and the string players in this piece, but of also making these three pieces, two of which are just string quartets, one of which is a saxophone quintet, two of which were recorded in one space. We recorded the last two pieces at Indiana University's Our Hall in December of 2019, but the Shulamit Ram was recorded in a different hall at the Performance Hall at the Logan Center at the University of Chicago in January of 2019, and yet you wouldn't know that there were different spaces. You don't feel a great difference in the sound between the quartets and the quintet. It's just such a masterful job of engineering. So I'm, I'm really lucky to be able to work with Bill as I do on every recording I produce. And as are we, it's amazing what he did with this recording. Whenever we have a challenge like that, and it's not even just those challenges, but we have so much trust in everything Bill does, we don't even have to worry about that. A problem arises, he's on it, he has a solution. Everything about the whole process with Sadie is that we always know that we're in good hands and that it takes a lot of the stress off of the performer knowing that there's so much experience in producing a good CD and how to do it and the guidance that we'll get and the help that we have on every level. We've been working with him since the beginning and he's so laid back and relaxed about things. He keeps the stress low and we have 100% trust. So we're, we're very lucky as well. Now talking a little bit about this piece, it's from 2007. So presumably the interpretation has evolved over time, over different players, both in terms of collaborators and different members of the quartet. And also you've been working with the composer for a while too. So how was that process like, both working with her when you were first learning it, and how did you work with her leading up to the recording? I think the piece is so well written, and the concept is so clear that we didn't need as much time with her as in the first two works. Understanding the score and what she asked for is pretty concrete. So with all of these pieces, we've had enough time to live with them so that there's a certain comfort level that we've developed. The biggest way she was able to guide us was with the idea that this piece is very much a collaboration. Oh, and you mentioned about Zwillick's very clear indications, and of course one example of this is unlike the other two quartets on this album, the movements do not have descriptive titles, they have metronome marks. That's right. She's very specific about tempo and, and metronome. Those markings are very useful. We spend a lot of our time trying to figure out what the right tempo is for a movement and how it relates to the other movements. And she's very, very specific in, in her markings. And you mentioned the sassy sound of the saxophone, and we're going to hear the sassiest, I think, of the three movements, the middle movement, which is also a, kind of a scared so. Why don't you set up by talking about the more lyrical parts, which are the outer movements in the quartet as a whole, and then we'll get to the uh, boppy middle movement. Yeah, well, I think what's so beautiful about the outer movements is the lyrical aspect because the second movement is so rhythmic and 
playful and energetic. The saxophone is a beautiful sounding instrument and it really lends itself to that lyricism and it and in a way has this string-like quality to it and so it's very easy to play with a saxophone. I don't know why more composers haven't written for a string quartet and saxophone. And then when it needs to have that sassy quality in the middle movement, it can create that energy and slinkiness. It's really nice to be able to add this work to the chamber music repertoire for string quartet and saxophone. And I would also say we have a lot of experience where we're often asked to coach saxophone quartets. They often steal our string quartet repertoire. And it's amazing how that works. Played for saxophone quartet, that string quartet repertoire, like the Dvorak American and and Mendelssohn string quartets on saxophone quartet. And it really works incredibly well because of that singing communicative quality that saxophone has. We're actually going to listen to the second moment just because it's so cool. And it really, to my ear, has a jazz bop quality. Oh, for sure. It's very jazz-like. And I think that was one of our challenges. There's so much rhythmic unison, especially I found that Otis and I were trying to develop a groove. And we had to really understand each other in rehearsal. We had to do a passage over and over until we were breathing it. You can't just play that in a square way, the way that the 16th notes come off rests. It has to have a certain effortless feeling to it. And that took some time. We had to really spend time, I guess the word would be breathing those phrases, letting them happen, not forcing it by over-articulating or being too vertical rhythmically. That's the whole spirit of that movement. Well, let's hear that then. This is the second movement of Ellen Taft-Zwillick's Quintet for Alto Saxophone and String Quartet, performed by Otis Murphy and the Pacifica Quartet. Thank you. 
That groove you just heard was the second moment of Ellen Taft-Swillick's Quintet for Alto Saxophone and String Quartet on a new album by the Pacifica Quartet, joined there by saxophonist Otis Murphy. The members of the Pacifica Quartet are Simeon Ganatra and Austin Hartman violins, Mark Holloway viola, and Brandon Vamos cello, and it's from their new album, Contemporary Voices on Sadie Records which is generously supported by Bonnie McGrath and Bruce Altman. So thank you so much for making this possible. It's an album that I hope after hearing these three excerpts, you'll want to check out and you can find it on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Wherever albums are sold as physical CDs, as downloads, and once we reach the official release date of this album, which is July 10, 2020. You'll be able to find it on all the wonderful sites that stream music, both the more popular sites like Spotify and Apple Music, and also the most high-end HD sites were there too in spectacular sound. So I hope you'll want to check this out. Brandon, you've said that this collection of works represents a culmination of the Pacifica's performance history. Can you explain that and talk generally about what you'd like listeners to take away from listening to this album as a whole? Well, we came across Jennifer at a very early stage in our career. The memories of learning that piece and being young and her being young, I think that sort of sets the stage for that part of our time together. Our relationship for 17 years with uh, Shulamit Ron and her writing this piece is a big bulk of our time together. It's a piece that we've played so many times so that reflects, again, a lot of our collective time together as a quartet. And then finally, this piece by Zwillick, which represents our collaboration with other musicians. And why this project was interesting is that we feel a responsibility as musicians that we need to keep this field alive. Our goal, even from the beginning, was to represent the great creations of the 20th and 21st century. There's so much great work being developed right now and great creativity happening, and we want to be a part of that. All three of these works are pieces that we believed in strongly, that we love playing, that we think should be part of the repertoire, that should be played for years to come by many young groups, and we want that to happen. We feel strongly about them, and one of our goals as a quartet is to continue keeping classical music exciting, not just playing the quartets of... Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven, of course, pieces that we love and will always come back to, but to continue to be a part of the creativity of composers today. And of course, Sadie has that same goal, so lucky that we have that ability to do this. And I should note that it's important not only to commission new works, as is the case in the Shulman Ron piece, but also to bring new life to recent works, as you've done by recording the Higdon piece and Alan Zwillick's piece as well. So that speaks well to your history. And also working with Otis Murphy here, your history of collaboration, which on recordings has included recent collaborations with guitarist Sharon Isbin, clarinetist Anthony McGill, pianist Menachem Pressler, and going all the way back to your very second album, violist Michael Tree. So there's quite a history there as well. That's true. Of course, Adding a member to the quartet, it changes things quite a bit, and it, it keeps us on our toes, and all of the musicians you mentioned, we admire greatly, and have added a lot to our musicianship and the way we, we perceive music. So again, yeah, we feel lucky to be able to collaborate with such great performers. 
I also want to note something really refreshing about this album. We have not talked at all about the fact that it's an album of three women composers and we're not promoting it as such. We're simply promoting it as the work of three preeminent American composers, again, all Pulitzer Prize winners, who just happen to be women. I think in this age especially, that's really refreshing and wonderful thing. Well, it's so true. I mean, it wasn't an impetus for grouping these composers together. They just are fantastic composers, and it's the way it should be. But it, it does turn out that there were three women composers who are Pulitzer Prize winners, and this is a special year uh, marking the 100 years of suffrage. It just turns out, luckily, that that's the way things fell. But that was not the intent of the project at all. We're just lucky that we have such great music to play. To wrap up, I should ask how the quartet has been dealing with the current crisis, as well as what's in the ensemble's future when things open up again. It's been challenging. We have regular meetings. We're not rehearsing yet. We had a big summer schedule, and next year is going to be incredibly busy, and we don't know how that's going to turn out. So there's a lot of uncertainty. We have a lot of discussions about if we're not performing in concert halls, how we can still stay connected how we can perform somehow, how we can reach audiences, how we can keep music alive. So we've been brainstorming, we've been talking to other musicians, we met with our manager and all of the musicians they represent the other day to flesh out these ideas. And so there's a lot of creativity going on right now. We're hoping to get together soon, whenever we feel like we're ready for it and figure out how that's gonna be. Of course, it's disappointing to miss out on all the things that we were planning on doing this summer, but it's also a way of rethinking things. I get up every morning and I practice my solo repertoire now. I play Bach, I look at the concertos that I'm teaching, I listen to recordings of quartets and cellists and think about projects for the quartet that we could do, listen to recordings of other composers. So in a way, there's a lot more time to reflect then during the year when we're rehearsing, we're practicing, we're traveling, we're teaching, there's almost no time to really get your head straight and think about what's going on in your life and what you could be doing. So I think as most people are, taking advantage of the time to learn and think and have a lower blood pressure for a while. And I assume that having that teaching base is probably been one thing, but I also imagine it's one thing to teach individual lessons online. I assume you've been doing some chamber music coaching online? I have one quartet, one of our college quartets, that's very serious, that is actually quarantining together. So I've been coaching them every week. That's been interesting. There are certain ways we've gotten better at doing it. Sound can be a challenge, you know, especially with a quartet. I have them send me video every week on YouTube, on an unlisted YouTube channel, and I can make comments, and I can go back, and I can listen to it over and over, and my comments can be as specific as I can be, because I have time to really delve into it. I think it's an effectiveness that you don't have even in a room together, because there's some more thought put into it. But of course, you can never replace hearing that the sound and the color and being in the same environment. You can't really replace that hard as we try. So I'll be very happy to go back to teaching in a space where we can really connect. There is that problem online of feeling still distant. And I don't know if there's probably is technology that will make this better and better, but it's a process right now. Well, we're all hoping that by next year, things will start to open up again, even hopefully for concerts. So are there any things you're particularly looking forward to in your 2021 schedule? Well, we were in the midst of a recording Beethoven Quartets live, and so that's something that we'd like to continue doing. 
We have a very exciting commissioning project with Anthony McGill, a composer by the name of Ben Shirley, is writing a quintet for us. And we'll be performing that, God willing, in probably about 10 or 11 different venues throughout the country. So that's very exciting. We have a big season planned and a lot of interesting repertoire. We were doing a women's suffrage program, Fanny Mendelssohn Quartet, as well as Amy Beach and Ruth Crawford Seeger. And we were looking forward to delving into that. And we're still brainstorming right now about different ideas. I won't give anything away yet until it's more concrete. We have some other recording ideas, and we have a lot of big plans, but we just can't wait to get together and start fleshing them out. And we can't wait to rehearse. I hope it comes soon. I'm ready to go right now. I think we all are. Well, I imagine you and Samin still rehearse together. We do. We do a little quartet duos, just keeping our chops and listening to each other, making sure we don't lose that ability to connect with each other. And we've been doing some violoncello duos, and we're lucky that we have each other in the same house. It's not the same as that fantastic group of four, having all four voices together. So we're, again, like I said, can't wait for that to happen. Finally, we always like to end these podcasts by asking, and you as a native are particularly equipped to answer uh, what, for you, makes the Chicago music scene especially special. You know, I've said this before, and it's very special to me because I grew up right outside of Chicago, and that's the city that I feel is home. My musical childhood was there. It's the city that took care of the quartet early on in our career for many years with our residencies there, with our relationship with Sadie Records, with the audience that we got to know, with performing throughout the city. And we had so many venues to play in. The support for chamber music, the support for musicians and artists, the excitement. Even, I have to say, the freelancing that we did when we were young, how the opportunities that we had to make a living in Chicago, the symphony, the opera. I could go on and on. I mean, it still is my favorite city. My family's there, so I can't say enough about what Chicago's meant to me, my life, and my life as a musician. Well, I really appreciate that. This has been great talking to you about this, Brandon. This album really is spectacular. It's three just terrific works. I think they complement each other really well as well. Again, it's titled Contemporary Voices, and those voices are all Pulitzer Prize-winning composers, Shulamit Ron in a world premiere, Jennifer Higdon and Ellen Tapswillick. The last piece is a collaboration with Otis Murphy, uh, your colleague, at Indiana University on saxophone. It is the latest from the Pacifica Quartet on Sadie Records, and I hope everyone will want to check it out. So thanks so much for doing this podcast with us, Brandon. And I just wanted to thank you, Jim, for what you did for us on the CD, and you're producing this great recording and your willingness to take on this project. And so thank you so much for your terrific work. It's been a true pleasure. So this has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. <laughs>